The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents Setting the Record Straight, where various Christian Reconstructionist pastors seek to understand and dissect the issues that are plaguing the church today, from the pulpit to the pew. This message is a very simple one. I jokingly said it's going to be like eight pages, but it's not. We're going to talk about this this aspect from the least to the greatest, okay? And as we do, I want you to, there's something that kind of stuck out, and I'll share that with you in a moment. But our theme passage is going to be in the, in Matthew 18 tonight. So go ahead, go forward. In Matthew 18, I'm just going to start with the first four verses, and then we're going to do a cut. We're going to break it down a little bit. Then I'm going to come back to the theme passage in Matthew 18. We'll finish off the whole chapter, okay? So it says in Matthew 18, verses 1 through 4, it says, At the time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, ultimately, ultimately, what that passage of scripture is talking about, and I want to share this. We're not going. To, I don't want this to be the takeaway tonight. Ultimately, that passage of scripture is telling us that we need to come to Christ in in humility and trust. Like a child trusts their parent. A simple faith, right? It, it, the average child, if they ask me questions about Jesus, about God the Father, or the Holy Spirit, very few children ask me about the Holy Spirit, but they ask me questions about Jesus, they're usually very simple questions. They're not these big, long, thought-out, brainiac questions, right? Um, so I want us to think about this. When we come, it's a simple, childlike faith. Now, I want to also, before we get into this passage, he is not saying we are to stay in a place of immaturity. We're not to just be like children and just, just have a blind faith. Because that's what atheists really get on to Christians saying, you have a blind faith. My my faith is not blind. My faith is in the is is in the risen Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's in the Word as revealed to us. Okay? It's not a blind faith. Therefore, we need to know more than Jesus is my Lord, He's my Savior. He He walked into the door of my heart, and now I'm saved, and everything's great. It's more than that. Okay? It's not something that that's simple. So when we talk about this, he, when he talks about who's the greatest in the kingdom, we're not talking about someone who is just immature in their faith. It's someone who truly puts their whole hope, their faith, and their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for everything. Just like, just like a child, you, you experience you, you depend on your parents for everything, right? The goal is that we become men and women self-sustainable, right? Uh, whether we remember to put our uh, 
whether we remember to put our deodorant on or not, we still are taught to put it on at some point in time. Hopefully, we can put our deodorant on so we don't stink in front of people. Okay, it just happens. Um, every one of us forgets at some point in time. I'm not picking anybody specific. So, it's one of those aspects. We're growing up, but that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about maturity. We're not talking about immaturity here. What we're talking about is a reliance. So someone made a post the other day, and it got me thinking. I've been seeing, I've seen it a couple times, but it really got me thinking because I've been reading through this passage, right? And when we talk about the Gospels, the, we talk about the synopt, synoptic Gospels, meaning the what is it? It's a synonym, right? They're similar, correct? They're like one another. And so there is a, an account in the book of Mark that is similar it's the same account but it has something that's specifically there that really got me thinking about this aspect of the least to the greatest because they ask who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven there's something missing though why are they talking about who the, who the greatest in the kingdom will be mark tells us okay so let's look at mark chapter 9 real quick verses 33 through 37 it says they came to capernaum and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? Jesus asked them. But they kept silent. <laughs> For on the way they had argued with one another about who is the greatest. Ah, we find out what the problem is. And he sat down and he called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives such one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So he gives this bang. He says, the greatest of all is who? The least of all. The servant of all. The first will be what? Last. You want to be the greatest, you're going to have to, there's going to be a, a difference here. And so I, when I posted this this morning on, on Facebook about what we're going to talk about tonight, I always do that on Sunday mornings, I always post, here's the subject, I might, I might post a little snippet earlier on in the week, but on Facebook I'll put it, what this is, and this is the question. See, they, this question that this person, uh, these people have been posting, or these little memes or what have you, Ask this question, if the greatest amongst us are to be servants, then why do churches hold thousands upon thousands of leadership conferences? But no one, not one single servant conference. I can tell you I've been to leadership camps. I've taught at leadership camps. I've been to leadership conferences been a part of those teaching but I've never been or ever heard of a conference on serving and this is the question that needs to be asked why is that because I think we all deep down whether people wanted to admit it they want to be great but they don't want to do what it takes to be great in the kingdom. Many people want to be great this side of heaven. But they don't want to do what it takes to be great in the kingdom of heaven. 
So let's look about let's look at that tonight. What would it look like for us to learn at a servant conference? But instead of being a conference where you have a bunch of speakers over many hours in a couple of days, let's just do it in a, a short period of time, okay? Let's just look at a couple of attributes, some characteristics that we have here in this passage, this theme passage. So whoever wants to be great, number one—that's uh, the—that was the—that was a quote. Sorry, go ahead and go on to the next. So whoever wants to be great, go ahead, Grace, put the next little thing up there. A must be first must be humble. They must be humble, or humble, or however you pronounce it. If they want to be great, they have to be humble, first and foremost. In James 4, 1 through 10, it talks about what quarrel, what causes quarrels and causes fights among you. Is it not this, that your passions are at war with you, you desire and do not have, so you murder? And we don't necessarily physically murder somebody, but we murder them with our words. We murder them with our talk, back-talking or gossiping behind people's backs or how we feel about them. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You don't have because you don't ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the what? What does it say? God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. What does it say? Humble yourselves before the Lord. And what will happen? He will exalt you. He will raise you up. A person who wants to be great in the kingdom of heaven must first be humble. Matthew 23, 11-12, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks. It says, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And that's important. Because in the, in the, in the world I, we live in, in the places that, where we work and we deal with others, there are some people who want to exalt themselves and make themselves look better or be better than others. They want to be great. One of the things I've learned in working, whether it be for myself or where I'm working now, I will say this. When you humble yourself and you take the form of a servant and you serve others in order to better them, things don't always go well, but people notice. Great people, great leaders are servants. And that's what that passage tells us. Whoever the greatest among you will be your servant. The most important person in a room or in a company is the one who serves the greatest. Not because they're forced to, but because they willingly want to. Whoever wants to be great also be. Real easy tonight. Must be obedient. Must be obedient. 
while there may be, while there may be plenty of grace given to the Lord, given by the Lord, we need to be obedient. We we ought to desire to be obedient to the Lord in all things at all times, so that He is not maligned and He is not put down, but we're obedient to Him. In John thirty three, verses thirty five through thirty six, it says, "The Father loves His Son." And has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. I could probably go to 1 John 5 and talk about those who truly love the Lord. Or we are, are, obey his commands. We're, those are his disciples, right? In Romans 6. Romans 6, uh, we, we find there, it talks about that we are slaves to the one whom we obey. Either of sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you are committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Now, people don't like that word. There are people who don't like that at all. But we are slave. Mean what does it? What does it really mean to be a slave to righteousness? What does that mean? We mean when we talk. Remember, we talked about uh, the word meekness, about being uh, uh, harnessed to the will of God. It's 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 we are harnessed in being harnessed to the will of God. We we seek to obey. We seek to honor our Lord, our Master, our Savior Jesus Christ. We seek to honor the commands He's given us to obey them. Because they glorify Him. They speak greatly of Him. And, and when we have commands or the Ten Commandments or the Law of God, we, we ought not look at it in such a way that it is a, these are a, a no-no list of things you don't do. But these things set us free to live fully for Christ. When we know our limitations, when we know what God has commanded, we're not walking around wondering if we're going to screw up and not know we shouldn't be doing something. He's given us a guidebook so we know the way we should walk in it, so that we know how we can please Him. And so a person who wants to be great ought to be obedient. They're a person who has... Is obedient to that, and let's. I, although I'm skipping a little scripture here, they also see must surrender all things. One who wants to be great in the kingdom of heaven must surrender all things, or better said, submit all things. But we surrender all things. Remember the. Remember what Jesus Jesus actually said in Matthew chapter 10. He said, Don't think that I've come to bring peace on the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. That does not mean that we're to war with one another, that we shouldn't love one another, we shouldn't care for. What is he getting at? We have to keep going. He said, Whoever loves his father... Or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Jesus said, whoever finds his life 
will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. We surrender to the one who has called us, who has saved us. So those who want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, they're humble, they're obedient, and they surrender all to him. In Luke 9, 57-62, I'll actually go to, the, go to the end of that, but he says, no one puts his hand to the plow and looks back. They do, they're not fit for the kingdom of heaven. We need to understand that following Christ, it does not mean a vow of poverty, okay? It doesn't mean you've got to go home. If you're going to follow after Jesus, you've got to go get rid of everything. That's not what we're saying. It doesn't mean you have to abandon your family. That's not what it says. What is it saying? If you put anything before Christ and following Him in obedience, what happens? We're not following Him. We're following after our, the, our desires, our lusts, our wants. We're putting our priorities before His. Rather than see what our calling and our purpose is, and then whatever that is, fulfill it for the glory of God. Letter D. A person who wants to be great will lead others toward righteousness. We're going to jump back on our theme passage in just a second. They lead others toward righteousness. Not toward unrighteousness. In our theme passage in Matthew 18 says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Yikes. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations to come. But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Is he advocating that you cut off your hands, your feet, or pluck out your eyes? Is that what the Lord's telling us to actually do? No. What he's saying is to die to yourself in order to live for him. And in doing so, we ought to be cautious and conscience, conscious about what we're doing. Because if we lead others to sin, especially young little ones, woe to us. It'd be better for us to be cast out in the middle of the sea with a big stone hung around our neck when we drowned. What he's saying is, there's great judgment when we cause others to sin because of our sin. When we tempt others to do things that are ungodly. In Proverbs 10, we're told the wage, the wage of the righteous leads to life. The gain of the wicked to sin. Whoever heeds instruction is on the path to life, but he who rejects reproof leads others astray. He tells us the righteous, the wage of righteous leads to life. We ought to be leading others to life. And that, in fact, it goes on in Proverbs chapter 12. 
In verse 26, he says, One who is righteous is a guide to his neighbor, but the way of the wicked leads him away. A righteous, godly, young man, woman of God, boy or girl, okay, a righteous one leads others toward righteousness and away from sin. That's what a great person in the kingdom of heaven does. In fact, I'll even take a little short uh, stop here, just break, and just say this. My pastor friend over in uh, Gordon Runyon over in uh, Tucumcari, uh, New Mexico, um, put out a, his last podcast was, was a great one because one of the things he talked about is as pastors, we are, our job is not to gather people around us to hear us preach or lead others to us. Our, our responsibility is not to, um, it's not to do anything but to preach the word of God, to equip the people around us. One thing I would tell y'all is that one thing that's that's important for us is that you need to understand, and I think y'all have seen enough and know me well enough to know I'm not a perfect man, right? I sin. I've done wrong. I've I've broken the law of God. I've sinned against Him. I am saved, and I walk with Him, and occasionally I sin. And when I do, there needs to be repentance. See, I am not the standard for you or my children. I'm not the standard for your parents. I'm not, your parents are not your standard. The standard that we have is the Lord Jesus Christ. And instead of us having where we lead others to us, great men and women of God, in the kingdom of heaven, lead others towards righteousness. They lead always to the feet of Jesus. They don't lead to our understanding or our way of doing things. Great men and women of God always lead to the feet of Jesus and his commands. I don't want my children to obey me because I say obey. I want my children to obey what I say because it goes with what God's word has said, what he's commanded. I want them to obey him. I want them to know him. Matthew 28, 18 through 20 is a great example. And I'm not going to quote the whole thing. What is it? Remember the last part of that where it says, what I underlined there? We are to teach when we make disciples, when we disciple the nations, we baptize them, they tell us them to what? To teach them to obey everything the Lord's commanded them. We lead others, godly men and women, who seek to be great in the kingdom of heaven, constantly are guiding others toward righteousness, to obey, to observe all he's commanded. Let's go to letter E. That same person seeks out those who are weak, oppressed, and being led astray.
those who want to be great in the kingdom of heaven seek out those who are weak, oppressed, and are being led astray. Let's look at the theme passage. You are done writing it down? Make sure. In the theme passage, it sees, says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it with more than, more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Now I want you to understand, this passage of Scripture is not talking about just those who walk away from the church. I, I, I think I've gotten, I've, I'm past that and I'm tired of hearing about that. The truth is, you can have people who never walk away, never, never seem to be away from the church, but don't know Jesus. Okay, They can flock up together and act like they're part of the body of Christ, and they're not. The reality is, there, there, are class, there are other classes or classifications we need to look at. There are those who are weak, sometimes an animal. Because we farm, because we've been around it, have you ever noticed that a, a, a sick animal, what do they do? Do they always huddle around all the others? What do they do? They seem to be where? Off by themselves, right? That's the first thing. Most animals are herd animals or flock animals, whatever you want to call them. They like to be with the others because they're safe in numbers, right? So one of the first things we need to understand is that sometimes people who are by themselves may be sick and weak. Maybe they're sick with sin. Maybe they're hurt emotionally, spiritually. Maybe they are. A man and woman of God who, who want to be great in the kingdom, seek out those who are weak. Not so that we can lord over them, not so that we can beat them down, but so that as the body of Christ, we are called to comfort them, to, to pray over them, to encourage them, to bring them back into the fold. Okay? What about those who are oppressed? Have you ever seen animals, how sometimes they like, in the, in, with chickens, it's called the pecking order, right? And they like to peck on the other chickens, and everybody's supposed to find their way. But sometimes you get one chicken that has an injury, and all of them gang up on them, right? It's the same thing with goats or pigs or cows. Um, any animal that I've found, there's a pecking order. And when there's a weak one, especially even with dogs they do this, they will gang up and they will beat up and possibly even kill the one that's weak or pressed. And so there are some people who have been beat up and beat down. The reason why they're not hanging out with a flock is they don't know if they're safe with a flock. Because they've been in maybe, they've been in churches or they've been in families or they've been in situations where they've been so beat up and so beat down, they don't know who to trust and if they can trust. And they don't know where to turn. So you know what they're doing? 
They're hiding out in the bushes, away from everybody else. Not even knowing that being away from the flock, they're in greater danger. And then I put here those who are led astray. Sometimes there are wolves in sheep's clothing that lead the sheep away. There are people who sound godly and righteous. Remember that passage I said, he said, Oh, Timothy, guard yourself at the end. Guard what has been entrusted to you. Because there are those who seem to have knowledge and they lead others down a path of destruction, basically is what it comes down to. A man and woman of God who seeks to be great in the kingdom will always seek out those who are weak, oppressed, and led astray. Why? To return them to the flock. To return them to the body of Christ. So there is there is there is strength in numbers. There is protection in numbers. There is encouragement and healing that can come and rest in the midst of the body of Christ. And sometimes there's in the body of Christ there, there's correction that is given. There's nourishment that's given. Not just physically eating barbecue or what have you like we did. But what happens? But they need spiritual nourishment. So they'd be strengthened, that they made well. And guess what? So that they can have a knowledge of the truth so that when another person comes along to try to lead them away, they can recognize them that they are wolves and that they don't belong to the body of Christ and the words not what they're speaking is not true. See in Proverbs 24, 10 through 12, it tells you so if you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. It tells us to rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. You know, a lot of times we use this regarding abortion and, and, that, and about preaching to those who are to try to keep those who are ha trying to go and murder their children. But I'm going to tell you, this thing is also for those who are stumbling to the slaughter, those who don't know they're lost and doomed and on, on, a, on a path towards hell. We don't know who is and who isn't. We are to rescue those who are stumbling that way, to tell them. In Zechariah, a book I have never preached from, okay, came this quote that I want to give you in Zechariah chapter 7. Verses 8 through 14 says, The word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Don't oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner of the poor. And let none of you devise evil against one another in your heart. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore great anger came from the Lord of hosts as I called and they would not hear, so they, so, uh, so they called and I would not hear. He called out to them, they wouldn't hear, and they refused to hear from the Lord. So when they prayed to him and called out and cried out to him, he refused to hear, it says. And I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations that they had not known. Thus the land they left was desolate so that no one went to and fro, and the pleasant land was made desolate. He told them not to, not to oppress the, the widow, the orphan, the foreigner, and their midst, the poor. We are told, commanded time and time again, to not to abuse the weak, the oppressed, and those who are 
outside of the faith, if you want to say it at the moment. We're not, we're told not to lord over them, but what do we do? We are to lead them toward righteousness. And a man and one of a God who seeks to be great in the kingdom, seeks out those who are weak, oppressed, and led astray. F, almost done. There's these same people seek out the restoration of men to God rather than retaliation. They seek out to restore people to God rather than to retaliate for what they've done. This, theme, this part of the theme passage is often used, and people want to talk about it, that is, uh, is a form of discipline. It's about church discipline, if you want to call it. But ultimately, this is how we deal when people sin against us. This is how we deal when someone sins in, in general. In Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20, it says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him, tell him his fault between you and him alone. That means if someone, you know your brother, your sister, your friend in Christ has sinned, you don't go and tell everybody else and talk to everybody else about it and then go to them. What are we to do? We are to go to them, right? If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen... It says, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. One of the things I will tell you, if you bring two or three witnesses with you and you go, they don't know what you're going to talk about, and you go and talk about it again, and you're wrong, and the person you're saying has sinned against you is not has not, they'll point it out to you and give you an opportunity to repent. But... The Bible tells us that everything's to be established on the testimony of two or three witnesses. And so if you go to them and they still they refuse to if he refuses to listen to them, we're to tell it to the church. That means bring it to the body of Christ. And when we bring it to the body of Christ, if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be as a Gentile or a pagan or a tax collector. Set him outside the church. We excommunicate with the purpose of restoration. That doesn't mean we kick them out permanently. We, we tell them they cannot fellowship with us until what? Until they repent. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two, or, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them. The point of that passage, ultimately, is restoration. We restore that brother or sister, that friend in Christ, right? We, we, we want to restore them so that what? That they are walking with the Lord, we are walking the Lord, and we're doing it together. Yeah, I'm not going to go through 2 Corinthians 7. I encourage you to read it on your own. But I will say this, that when Paul addressed them, it did cause them some grief because there had been some sin in the church. And he addressed them in such a way the end of, regarding the individual. But we ought to be grieved over the sin of others. We ought not to, when others sin greatly, 
we ought not just go, well, that's between them and God. We ought to love one another enough to point it out. That doesn't mean we're perfect, does it? Doesn't mean we're sinless, does it? It doesn't mean that when you go and point something out to your brother or sister in Christ, that they don't turn around and tell you the same thing. You have a, you also have this issue. You might need to repent in that moment. That's why the Bible tells us, even I put it up here, he tells us to what? To take the log out of our own eye before we try to take the speck out of our brother's eye. We want to deal with our personal sin before we go and try to remove the sin of others. And lastly tonight, the man or woman of God who seeks to be great in the kingdom of heaven forgives as he, has been, he or she has been forgiven. They forgive as they've been forgiven. And this is important. Probably the simplest message might even be elementary level message, but so many Christians get all this wrong, especially this aspect right here. We forgive as we have been forgiven. Matthew 18. Don't put everything away. You might, might find something. Matthew 18, he says in verse 21, Peter came up to him and came up to Jesus and said, Lord, how often will my brothers how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And he says, many as seven times? And Jesus looks at him and says, I do not say you seven times, but 77 times. Or 70 times seven, as some translations will even say. Do the math. 70 times seven is 490 times. For the same sin. What is Jesus saying to him? Your, your number... The number of times that you're to forgive is not the number of perfection and then you write them off. You don't, you don't just forgive somebody seven times and they say, you know what, buddy, I have nothing, no more time for you. You don't write them off. What does he say? You continue to forgive as you have been forgiven. You think the Lord has only forgiven us seven times and writes us off? How many times do you think that we have sinned and we don't even realize we have? We do things and we don't even recognize it. He talks about how we're to forgive. And I can say this point blank. He says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle his accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he's just been forgiven all that debt, right? Been not made to go into slavery, or his family into slavery. He's released and free, to, free to, and still has time to pay it off. When he went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owned him owed him a hundred denarii. Nothing. Okay? Nothing in comparison. And seizing him, he began to choke him. The word there, actually, the way it looks like, is to choke him to death. Saying, pay what you owe. Now. Basically. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him. Have patience with me and I will pay you. 
he refused and went up and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had the same mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all this debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. When we look at it, and the last thing I would share with you when we think about this is the greatest thing even the Lord's Prayer even tells us. It goes on, it says, Give us, it goes, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts. Isn't that it? And forgive us our debts, how? As we is also forgiven our debtors. It's literally a prayer saying, Lord, forgive me in the same way I forgive other people. So if we say, I forgive you, and then we hold a grudge against somebody, and we come and this is our daily prayer, this is our model prayer for how we should pray daily the very will of God, and we come and say, Lord, forgive me as I've forgiven others. Guess what happens? We condemn ourselves in that prayer, don't we? A godly man, woman of God, who... Who who'd seek and desire to be great in the kingdom of heaven. Forgive. As many times as necessary. Does that mean if someone borrows money from you and then they don't pay it back. That you have to turn around and keep giving them money as many times as they ask you. You don't have to. Right? Be a good steward of your money. Does that mean we allow people to hurt our feelings or hurt us and say and just do we just let them bully us around? No, we don't do that. You don't have to let someone hurt you. Sometimes forgiveness means distancing ourselves. <laughs> I forgive you, but I'm not going to allow you to hurt me anymore. I love you enough to tell you you hurt me. If they don't repent, they don't truly repent and they keep coming back. We need to take the other steps that Matthew 18 tells us. There are times with my own family, not my family here, but with my extended family, that I've had to say, I love you, I forgive you, but I can't allow you to do the same thing you did to me with to my own children and my wife or my family. I can't allow you to hurt them. In most of those cases, there's a lack of, of repentance. That means they don't believe they've sinned. Okay? So I can't allow that person to hurt my family. But here's the thing. When we're dealing with one another in Christ, the greatest is a servant of all. That means the one who gets into the trenches of this life and they work toward these aspects and when we do that, what do we do? We forgive. So I'm going to go, let's just rehash this one more time. A person who wants to be great, they have to be humble. 
obedient to God's word. They surrender all things. They lead others toward righteousness. They seek out those who are weak, oppressed, and led astray. They seek to restore men to God rather than to retaliate against them. Last, they forgive as they've been forgiven. I've been forgiven of a lot. More than I would ever desire to share. I've been forgiven of great things. And I, I find it hard to say why I could not forgive others. If God were just to show me 10 of the worst things that I'd ever done. <laughs> I'd remember quickly. <laughs> right? So let's just say this. Others deserve forgiveness. Just as we don't deserve it. But we are given freely by the grace of God. When we repent and we live for Him. Let's pray. Father, we come before You. We thank You for this day. We thank You for Your Word. And Lord, I pray... Whether we are least in the eyes of men or great in the eyes of men, that we will find ourselves humble before you. We know that your word says that one day every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that you are Lord. And Father, I don't see greatness this side of heaven. And what I mean by that is I seek to... I don't seek the greatness of men. I don't seek to be great in my own eyes or in the eyes of men or the eyes of this world. But Lord God, I pray that you are made great and you increase and you are made famous. Now, Lord, only the way that can happen is when your people, men, women, boys, girls of God, humble themselves and obey and surrender to you, Lord God, as they truly... Uh, they truly surrender all things to your lordship and Lord is, and they seek they seek to lead others to you and toward righteousness. They seek out the, the hurting, the oppressed, the weak, the those who have been led astray to bring them back into your fold. And Lord God, my prayer is that they will that we'll see this time and time again. That Lord God, the greatness will rise up from servanthood and not from leadership not by lording and Lord my prayers with these with all these that have gathered tonight those who will see this that Lord God in all things that they'll learn to be great it means we make ourselves very small and learn that through the insignificant things great things happen through serving others and making ourselves the least, that Lord God, yes, we are exalted, but we are exalted because you have been exalted on high in those moments and those things that we do. Lord, my prayer is that we will continue to honor you through it, that you'll give us grace, and Lord God, that you'll give us leadership by your Holy Spirit to empower us to do things you call us to. And we ask these things in the name above all names, the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to Setting the Record Straight. Join us on Facebook at the Reconstructionist Radio Discussion Group. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com 
to listen to all of our podcasts and to download our free audiobooks.